Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter then came out with the other disciple, and they went toward the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying and the napkin which had been on his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. This is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday, the finals of the Masters Golf Tournament was shaping up to be a great finish. It was going to be exciting. There were so many top players all near the top of the leaderboard. I mean, you just knew it was going to be an exciting finish. And I knew that I wanted to really be able to see this, but I was afraid that I wasn't going to get to see it. You know, Marsh and I have a, have a tradition on Masters Sunday that is like no other. We like to come home from church and we always get a nice rib dinner and we split that and we get fried okra and corn on the cob and we sit down in front of the TV and I'm just toast after we finally have gotten through with a Sunday morning Easter and, and, and we watch it and then we take a nap and then I wake up in time to see how it ends. <laughs> and I watch the green jacket being placed on the winner and it's always a very exciting day. But last Sunday I knew I had a problem. Because of all that weather rolling in, I knew that they were going to start the tournament now at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And they were going to play in threesomes instead of twosomes. And they were going to start simultaneously people on the first tee and the tenth tee in order to try to get everybody through the tournament before the thunderstorms are supposed to roll in that afternoon. So I knew the tournament would probably be over by the time I got home. Especially because last Sunday I was going to be doing three services here at the church. And then I was going to two funerals. I had two funerals going on last Sunday. I was not conducting them. They were not here at the church. But they were friends of mine. And I wanted to be there. So I knew that I was going to try to record it. I hit the record button. And then I knew the big issue was I had to somehow get through Sunday morning without any of you telling me how it was going. 
And I just got to tell you, you are very kind people. I'd be out there and you'd become a, Bob, do you know how it, I don't want to know. <laughs> However, I did appreciate those who were coming out and saying that versus all of you who stayed home to watch. But I had people coming out, and you could tell they were always wanting to give me an update. How's it going? How's this looking? Who's, don't, tell, don't tell me. I, mean, I managed to get all the way through Sunday morning, and I had no idea how the whole thing was going on. I knew that Molinari was probably going to win. He'd been playing so amazing. I was kind of hoping Tiger might come from behind, but I knew that wasn't much of a chance. I, I just wasn't sure what was going to go on, but I was anxious to watch. We got through a Sunday morning and I went to the first funeral and I was there with family and friends. I left there and we rushed to the second funeral and I was there with family and friends. It was finally almost to the end of the funeral and I have to admit I was done. I was tired. Sunday morning started 4 a.m. for me, three services, now two funerals. I looked over to Marsh and I said, let's slip out. So we started slipping out across the back and I got to the door and as I got to the door, an old friend of mine that I hadn't seen in years was coming in. And he was coming in. His name was Ed. And I said, Ed, how are you doing? I'm doing so great, Bob. He said, I cannot believe I'm so late for the funeral, but I had to stay home and see Tiger win the Masters. <laughs> what? Don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. Oh, but Bob, he won the Masters. The last person I saw before I got to come home told me how it was going to end. And, and I got to tell you, I, I came home, I still watched it. But when you know the end, you watch it in a different way. I mean, I kept waiting for Molinari to, uh, to bogey the holes. I knew Tiger had to birdie holes. I mean, you just kind of kept watching. There wasn't the suspense. You knew how it was going to end. So you watch it different. And that's what happens to us as we read the Easter story. You and I know how it's going to end. So we hear it different. Different than Mary. We need to go back and read the story through Mary's eyes. Because she didn't know how it was going to end. And so it was so different. Mary had come with the disciples to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with these high expectations. Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to create the kingdom of Israel. It's going to be so exciting. And then they got to Thursday night and the Passover and Jesus was talking about betrayal. And before they knew it, in the Garden of Gethsemane, He was betrayed. And before they knew it, He was before Pilate and tried. And before sundown Friday, He was on a cross and He was dead. Now, if you have ever loved somebody and they're suddenly taken from you, if you've ever loved somebody who has died suddenly and they are gone, then you know what Mary was feeling. Shock, disbelief, grief, sadness, anger, all these emotions. How could it be? It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who took the body of Jesus down before sundown and they quickly laid it in the tomb. You had to be home by sundown because that was the beginning of the Sabbath. That was on Friday night. 
you had to stay at home throughout the Sabbath until the sun went down on Saturday night. And so it was early Sunday morning when Mary Magdalene finally went to the tomb. It was still dark. She got there and what did she find? The stone is rolled away. And she looked in the tomb and it was empty. And if you see the tomb is empty, then you know only one thing could have happened. Somebody had to steal the body. The body was gone. Somebody stole it. She left and she ran to go tell the disciples. She found Peter and John first and told them and they ran for the tomb. It was John who got there first and John stopped and he just looked inside at the empty tomb. Peter finally got there and he runs straight on into the tomb. You know Peter, that would be the personality. He's just going to run right on into the tomb. And then John goes in with him. But when they look at these grave cloths, the things that were wrapped around the body, the way they were lying there on this stone slab, they didn't look like the way people would leave cloths if they had stolen a body. Something, something just wasn't right. They didn't fully understand. They left. Mary stayed, sitting in the garden, outside the tomb, looking into the tomb, and suddenly she sees two angels. And looking at these angels, they say, Woman, why are you weeping? They knew the end of the story. They knew the resurrection. Woman, why are you weeping? For Mary... That possibility had not entered her imagination. There was only one explanation if the body was not there. And she says, because somebody has stolen the Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. If you tell me where they've laid him, I will go and get him. To have those kinds of moments when you know you're in the dark night of your soul where you've lost somebody you've loved, when you're in one of those difficult moments, it really can be so hard if you don't know the end of the story. And how often as you and I go through life, we're in a difficult moment. When you've lost somebody you've loved, or somebody's walked in and said, I don't love you anymore, I'm out of here. Or a doctor's come in and said, I have bad news. You can find yourself in those moments and you don't know how this story in your life is going to end. And that can be so difficult. But as people of faith, the belief is we know how the story ends. And it's because the story ends and the tomb is empty and he is risen that you and I are the people of hope even when we live in the stories that we don't know how they're going to end. I saw this really being lived out this last week in a, in a wonderful way as I watched the tragedy of the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral. You know, what a tragedy. I, I'll always remember where I was when I heard the news. I, I just got through conducting a staff meeting. We were all together when a, a friend showed up and said, look at this iPad, Notre Dame is on fire. And my first was like, shock, that can't be so. How could that possibly be? And you look at it and it truly is on fire. The flames are leaping. Now Notre Dame 
Our Lady of Paris is really the name of the church. It is this beautiful church that's 850 years old. It turned out that every year more than 13 million people go to Notre Dame. More than any other site in all of Paris. More than the Eiffel Tower, more than the Louvre. 13 million people will go to Notre Dame every year. They first started building it back in 1163. And they had their plans and to finally get the first part built basically took 100 years. 100 years. Now you just don't think about that. You're born. This thing is already underway. You give your life and work on it and you die and it still isn't done. Talk about giving yourself to something bigger than yourself. After 100 years, they finally had the first phase done, but there was a second phase, and they kept on working on that and, and finishing the first part, and that's another 100 years, 200 years. And finally, it was in a great place to, to be going forward as this wonderful cathedral. But through these 850 years, there's been other renovations. There have been additional buildings added onto it. It has gone through all these changes to what we had today. And it's amazing. And the important thing to remember is Notre Dame is not a museum. It's a working church. People come there each week to worship, just like we do. They come there to be a family of faith, like we are. They come to, to come together in order to go out and serve the community. That's a working church. Two years ago, Marsh and I went to Notre Dame. And it was a, it was a spiritual experience. To come in and to know that you were standing where literally millions of people had come over the last 850 years. You walk inside and down front is this beautiful altar and this gold cross hanging over the altar. And there's the Piete. It is a block of marble that has been carved into Mary holding the lifeless body of Jesus. It's known as Down from the Cross. And you just feel the pain. You see this behind his beautiful stained glass. I looked up and saw the organ. You know, the organ has over 8,000 pipes. We, we have 5,400 pipes. They have 8,000 pipes. And some of those pipes go back to the 1400s. It is the largest pipe organ in all of France. It's unbelievable. Somehow they feel like it was not damaged in the fire. Neither was the piete nor the altar. You look up and you see these rose stained glass windows that are incredible. They are breathtaking. But besides all of those things that I think were so moving, you know the thing that meant the most to me when I was there? Is walking along the outside of the stone columns right off kind of the edge of the sanctuary before you got to the wall. And as you walk along, there are all these confessionals. And it's the place where people would come to meet with a priest to confess their sins before taking the sacrament. And as you walked along, there it would have on a board and it would say, a priest will be here at 2 o'clock who speaks English, at 3 o'clock who speaks Italian, at 4 o'clock who speaks French, at 5 o'clock who speaks German. And you're, I'm going, my goodness gracious, this isn't a French church. This isn't just a Catholic church. It's a church for Christians around the world to come, to sit and to confess their sins, but more important, 
to experience God's grace. I went out there and I sat in a pew in the middle and I poured out my heart to God to experience God's grace. It was a spiritual experience. So I understood why people grieved when they saw this cathedral on fire. And what I thought was fascinating was that as it was burning and they're starting to fight it and put it out, people were already stepping forward and saying, from the ashes, we will rebuild. And I thought, that's really what the faith is about. From the ashes, when you and I have walked through the fire, when we have had those difficult, dark nights of the soul, we're already able to say, we will rebuild. We will rebuild our lives because we know the end of the story. He is risen. There is hope. People were already starting to step forward. You know, they've already raised or pledged more than a billion dollars to restore the cathedral It was in desperate need of restoring. And that's the fascinating thing. It needed to be restored. And I'm going to send a small contribution, not because they need it. I want to do it for my soul. Because I want to be a part of knowing I've helped this church, that is a part of the Christian faith, be there for another 150 years so that my great, great, great grandchildren will one day go and they will worship along all these other people on that thousandth anniversary and be able to know God's grace so that when you walk through the fire, when you have a dark night, you know the end of the story. And you have hope. That's the foundation of our faith. It's what I want us to think about this morning. I, I just want to say two things to you today. First of all, I believe it is Easter that gives us the strength to look up. Because when you have those nights when a loved one has died, someone's walked out of your life, when you're struggling with your health, when you have those difficult moments, it is easy to be looking down. Mary came to the tomb, it says, when it was dark. Now, you and I have been studying the book of John ever since January for four months We've been studying the book of John. We come to an end today. And what we've learned from John is whenever you read John, John doesn't just tell you what happened. John also has a lower, deeper meaning. There's symbolism in there. And this is one of those places. He's telling you Mary comes to the tomb early in the morning. It is dark. That is, she doesn't understand. It's one of those dark nights of the soul. She's grieving. She doesn't understand. That's where Easter begins. Easter ends with Mary looking up into the face of Jesus. That's what Easter is for us. Being able to look up to find strength and hope when we're in those difficult nights. You know, it's hard for me to believe that yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the shooting at Columbine High School. I mean, what a tragedy that was. 20 years ago. I remember when that hit the news and, and it rocked us as a nation. I mean, in our soul, it was like, how could this be? 12 students, one teacher, 13 people died because two students wanted to shoot them. 
It was the worst shooting in, in school history in our nation. In the last 20 years, we've now had Virginia Tech and we've had Sandy Hook and Stone Douglas and, and on and on. Our children are now taught drills on what do you do if there's an active shooter in the school. You know, I find that hard to believe that that's where we've come to. When I started Columbine, that was one of those watershed moments 20 years ago. Yesterday, they had all these different special times to come together to remember and to worship and to pray. I was watching the evening news last night, and, and I, I saw a lady, Anna Beck. She was one of those who was speaking. And when I saw her speaking, I thought, oh, my goodness. I wonder how many people really know Anna Beck's story. She spoke for a minute or two on national news. But Anna Beck, years ago, she and her husband were living right outside of Denver. They had four children, two twins, and then two other kids. They'd been high school sweethearts, married for 13 years. Life was great. And then one day he walked in the door and said, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. And he walked out of their lives. And suddenly it was Anna and four kids. And how are they going to make it? They began to struggle. They worked hard. She had to go back to school. She went back and became a teacher, a math teacher for middle school. And she coached high school volleyball just to try to make ends meet. It was tough. But the family was determined not to be bitter. No, they continued to love each other. And they said we would laugh and we were determined to be a family. Well, things kind of got the rolling better and they pulled it together and they made it even though it was razor thin. She was coaching the high school volleyball team and there was this man who started showing up. And Bruce Beck was a, a sporting goods salesman and he would come and try to sell her things for the volleyball team. And it was the team that went to him and said, look, we'll make sure you get a good order if you will ask the coach out. And so he did. He went and asked the coach out. They went out on a date and they had a wonderful time. They started dating and people could see they were falling in love. It was such a great thing. And then Anna started feeling a little wobbly and getting a little dizzy. She didn't say anything to anybody until one day she just collapsed. They rushed her to the hospital. They did some tests. They found she had a congenital birth defect with her her artery coming up her neck to her cerebellum and it was wrapped around strange ways and they said, you're going to have a stroke and die. Unless we go do surgery, but if we do, there's still a chance you may die. She had the surgery and when she woke up, she had had a small stroke. Her left side was paralyzed. She couldn't really speak well. Her memory was a little fuzzy. But the doctor said, we really believe you can get over this type of stroke. You can make it with hard work and some time. All the teachers at her school went to the district and said, can we give up our sick leave and give it all to her so she can have a year to stay at home and not go into financial ruin? And they said, yes. And with that generosity, she had a year to get better. Her kids were there to teach her how to walk, how to talk, how to bring back this memory. And when she would mess up, she would laugh. They would laugh. It was like, we can do this. With God's grace, we're going to do this. One year later, she was able to go back and teach. 
And if you watched her on TV last night, you would have no idea that that had ever happened to her. She's done so well. Well, she got better. She and Bruce got married. The family settled in. The kids, the twins graduated. The next child graduated. One kid left at home, Lauren. She was 18. She was valedictorian of her high school class, captain of the volleyball team. Anna drove her to school that morning and kissed her goodbye and said, have a great day. Her high school was Columbine. In a couple hours, Anna began hearing there was a shooting at the school. It would be 24 hours before she would get the call that told her that Lauren was dead. She had been in the library above the cafeteria. She was under a desk shielding two other students when she was killed. How do you deal with that? In a moment, something so senseless, you lose this person you love? Talk about a dark night of the soul. Walking through the fire. It was her faith and her family that kept her on her feet and gave her strength. It'd be a year later, she got with other parents and said, I want to tear that, that library down. And they agreed. And the school district said, that's fine if you raise the money. And so these parents went out and they raised millions of dollars to build a new library and demolish this library above the cafeteria. And what they did was they put in this atrium above it. And there's these large paintings of aspens reaching towards the sky. It was amazing to hear Anna talk yesterday. A lady of strength and poise and grace wanting to remember and to celebrate their lives. But I want to read you what she said about what they did. The hole in my heart has not grown any smaller, but I'm trying to make my heart bigger to let in more love. When I see these kids and I see their dreams and their hopes and their future, it gives me hope. The reason we wanted that library torn down and we wanted this atrium was because we wanted to paint these large color aspens up on the ceilings, the trunks soaring towards heaven, the green canopy making the heaven. Because when the kids walk in, we didn't want them to come in and be walking around with their heads hanging down. We wanted them to come in and have to look up into the heavens. To look up. It is God who gives us the strength to be able to look up even when you're walking through the fire, when it's a dark night of the soul. To find the strength you didn't know you had, to be able to trust in God's constant love of us as children, even when you grieve, even when you suffer, in those moments. Because you still know the end of the story. And secondly, it says Mary came to the tomb while it was still dark and she's looking in the tomb. And the angel said, why do you weep? It's because Mary could not imagine anything other than somebody took the body. 
to have the imagination says, He's been raised from the dead. That was beyond her imagination. He's been raised from the dead. How could that be possible? And yet that is the gift of Easter. That understanding that God moves in our lives in a way that's more than we can imagine. When you are going through your dark moments, when you don't know how your story is going to end, to trust that you don't necessarily know all the possibilities. You don't know all the things that may happen. There are greater things than you can even imagine how God can work in your life. It's how you trust. It's back in 1896 that Johns Hopkins Hospital received a statue. It's Christ the Divine Healer. It stands about ten and a half feet tall, but it's up on a pedestal, so it's even higher. And it's this solid piece of Italian marble, and it has Christ looking down, and it has His hands extended out, and it's this beautiful, warm look on His face. It has been there in the rotunda now for a hundred years. And people come whenever they're on their way to surgery to stop and to pray, or surgeons as they come by touch His feet on the way to the O.R., People sit in the rotunda, this administrative area, just to pray and to meditate. It branches off in six different ways to go to operating rooms and hospital rooms and examination rooms. Well, back in 1996, when it had been there for a hundred years, the Baltimore Sun sent a reporter, Jeb Kirschbaum, to go down and do a story about it because it had been such an iconic piece of art that inspired and blessed people for so long. And he went down and he sat there in this atrium and watched people come and go and pray and things. He was sitting there when suddenly this little boy comes walking in. He has on a baseball shirt, has on a ball cap, and he walks up to this statue and looks up. And then he takes his hat off and he has no hair. It's obvious he's already been going chemotherapy. And he stands there, and you can tell that he's praying. And then he places a piece of paper at the feet of Jesus. And then he puts his ball cap on and he leaves. Well, there was light that was shining in just right on top of this little boy's head, standing there at the feet of Christ. Jeb got the picture. They ran it in the daily um, newspaper there in Baltimore, the Daily Sun, And they ran it on Mother's Day, and you can imagine it caused quite a stir. It was an iconic picture. Well, in the end, he couldn't help himself. He went up to go pick up the piece of paper and see what what this little boy had left. And what he had left was a prayer. And it simply said, Dear Jesus, this is Grayson. If you could, would you just heal all the other children? Thank you very much. It turned out it was Grayson Gilbert. He was six years old. He was such a happy little boy and so full of life. And then his mom started noticing this knot in his stomach. They took him in and they found out it was pancreatic cancer. And it already began to invade throughout his stomach and cavity. They decided they would do a Whipple procedure. They do them today. This was 1996. He was the youngest child ever to have this done on. They went in and they would ultimately take out his gallbladder, half his stomach, and 80% of his pancreas to try to save him. And they said, 
there's a good chance he won't live through the surgery. If he does, we would give him maybe one year to live. They did the surgery. He did make it through. It was touch and go, but he made it. And then he made it through a whole year. And then a second year, and then a third year, they were stunned that he had lived that long. But he was getting stronger, getting a little better. His organs were compromised. He suddenly had diabetes uh, type 1. Uh, he was having to eat 10 meals a day, small meals, to try to be able to digest them. I mean, it was touch and go on and on again. But the amazing thing was he was such a kid who loved everybody else. And he kept making it another year and another year. Finally, he was old enough he could be playing Little League Baseball. I mean, he'd gotten strong enough and healthy enough. They said, yes, if he wants to play Little League, he can. All the other kids knew him as the kid who has cancer. His teammates saw him as our, our player. But Grayson loved to tell the story of the time that he came to bat and he hit one out over the outfielder's head and it rolled and rolled. And he took off running and he got to first and then he got to second. He was on his way to third when he just ran out of gas. He literally did not have the stamina. And it was the shortstop and the third baseman of the other team that picked him up and carried him around third all the way to home, home run. And he loved to talk about the one home run that he had hit in his career. He knew that other people who had been so kind and blessed him but you could tell from the earliest of age, he wanted to bless others. Back when he was six years old, he would go to other kids' rooms who were down, who had cancer. He'd bring them gum. He'd sit and talk. He'd try to raise their spirits. He wanted them to be blessed. Well, that continued on. And as he became this, you know, little older kid, he became the ambassador for Maryland to the Miracle Network. And he was out speaking and and trying to bring awareness to kids struggling with cancer. He started painting ties for Joseph A. Banks, miracle ties, ties that you could buy, and all the profits went to, to support kids with cancer there at Johns Hopkins Hospital. No, he would do all these amazing things, knowing that his time was going to be short. I told you a little bit about him almost 10 years ago now. And I don't know why the other day I decided I wanted to go find out how things had worked out for Grayson. And what I discovered was it was really unimaginable. You see, he's now 29. He's 29 years old. He stands 5'9". He's 130 pounds. He really seems to be doing well. He graduated from Townsend University with a degree in communications. He has a job. Recently, he was honored with the Children's Hope Medal of Honor from the World Health Foundation for all the work he has done to try to encourage children and parents who find themselves in the dark night of their soul. What I thought really was great was four months ago, he got married. He's living life in a way that no one would imagine was possible. And they were interviewing him and I, talking back about when he was six years old and standing in front of this statue and, and all that has unfolded. And I want to read you what he said. When I touched Christ's foot, it was because I wanted to pour out my fears. 
I had so many fears as a little boy. But when I looked into the face of Christ, I felt like it was going to be all okay. I felt a sense of peace. And all my life I've known it's going to be okay. Now that doesn't mean I'm going to live. But it means whether I live or whether I die, I know it's going to be okay. To be living in that dark time in your soul. To walk through the fire. When you don't know how this part of your story is going to end. You still are able to affirm it's going to be okay. Because of our faith in Christ, it's going to be okay. You know the end of the story. The tomb is empty. He has risen. He is risen indeed. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.